0: Chapter 6, The Bondswoman's Escape. In July 1855, Jane Johnson, a house servant of U.S. Minister to Nicaragua, John Hill Wheeler, planned to escape with her two young sons, Daniel and Isaiah. Wheeler had returned briefly to Washington to fulfill a diplomatic duty and to pick up Jane and her two sons before sailing to New York and then on to the Caribbean. Stopping in Philadelphia, Wheeler checked his party into Bloodgood's Hotel and locked his three slaves in their room while he took dinner. Jane had planned to escape when she reached New York until a free black hotel worker who was also a member of the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee offered his assistance. Desperate for help, she accepted the offer. The hotel worker sent for William Still and Passmore Williamson. But the two underground railroad agents arrived at Bloodgoods only to discover that the Wheeler party had already left for the steamship. Still and Williamson hurried to the wharf, accompanied by five free black members of the Vigilance committee when the contingent caught up with jane and her sons on the second deck of the steamer still asked are you traveling yes she replied promptly with whom johnson nodded in the direction of her owner williamson turned to wheeler and asked do they belong to you sir yes he replied they are in my charge redirecting his attention to jane still informed her of her rights you are entitled to your freedom According to the laws of Pennsylvania, having been brought into the state by your owner, if you prefer freedom to slavery, as we suppose everybody does, you have the chance to accept it now. By the laws of Pennsylvania, Still was referring to Pennsylvania's personal liberty laws, which were in direct contradiction to the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. Frightened that Wheeler would attack her with his walking stick, Jane noticeably distraught hesitated, act calmly still advised, don't be frightened by your master, you are as much entitled to your freedom as he is. Infuriated by the challenge to his authority, Wheeler exclaimed, she understands the law and she has the right to leave if she so desires, but she does not want to leave her three other children who live in the South. Ignoring Wheeler's protest still continued, judges Have time and time again decided cases in this city and state similar to yours in favor of freedom, he said. Of course, if you want to remain a slave with your master, we cannot force you to leave. We only want to make you sensible of your rights. Remember, if you lose this chance, you may never get another. Emboldened by Stills' words, Jane regained her confidence. I am not free, she said firmly. I want my freedom, but he holds me. She belongs to me, cried Wheeler. I intend to free her in time, but until then, she is my property. I've always wanted my freedom, said Jane sternly, taking hold of Still's arm with one hand and beckoning her sons to her side with the other. A crowd had gathered. Many onlookers appeared to sympathize with Jane Johnson while only one man, presumably a slaveholder, supported Wheeler. When Still began to escort the Johnsons toward the stairway leading to the deck below, Wheeler rushed them. Williamson, with the assistance of the two Vigilance Committee members, restrained the slaveholder. William Still guided Jane and her sons down Delaware Avenue to Dock Street and then on to Front Street, where they procured a carriage which would take them to one of the city's safe houses before their journey to Canada. Jane could not have been happier. For the first time in her life, she felt free. Words from William Still, The Underground Railroad and the Angel at Philadelphia by William C. Cachetis, the first major biography of the free black abolitionist William Still, who coordinated the east line of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia, recently issued by the University of Notre Dame Press. Dr. Kishadis holds a doctorate in history education from the University of Pennsylvania. He curated, just over the line, Chester County and the Underground Railroad, which won the American Association of Historical Society and Museums Award of Merit. He is author, or co-author, of 30 books, including Harriet Tubman, A Biography, and In Pursuit of Freedom, Teaching the Underground Railroad. Dr. Cashetis has taught at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education and in the history departments of Westchester University and Luzerne County Community College in Nanticoke. His family has roots here in northeastern Pennsylvania. William Cashetis paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about William Still and how he was drawn to the project. In nineteen
1: ninety-eight, I left independent education and began working at the Chester County Historical Society, which is one of the largest regional historical societies in in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And since Chester County lies just north of the Mason-Dixon Line, which was the dividing line between the free states and the slave states in the 19th century, the county was a battleground between pro-slavery and anti-slavery elements. So, Chester County's history, in many respects, is the history of the 19th century and the history of abolitionism. So, it was inevitable that I was going to do an exhibit on that. That particular county was very important on what we call the eastern line of the Underground Railroad. There are two lines. One is the western line, which comes up through Kentucky, Ohio, and then into Michigan and Canada. The eastern line comes up through uh, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and into Pennsylvania. Wilmington, Delaware was like a magnet for fugitive slaves because it was the northernmost city in a slave state. Thomas Scattergood, a Quaker uh, hardware store owner, was the point man for William Still in Wilmington, Delaware. And since he had a lot of extended Quaker family members in Chester County, he would secret them over the Mason-Dixon line into Chester County, and then they would be taken into Philadelphia to William Still. And Still was essentially the point person in Philadelphia who kept in touch with all these uh, underground railroad agents all the way up into Canada. So he was really at the heart of the nerve center in Philadelphia of the Underground Railroad.
0: What was the situation in Philadelphia itself? Because we hear a lot about the Quaker population in and around Philadelphia. Did that have a lot to do with the sentiments in and around the region?
1: Absolutely. William Still was a free black abolitionist, and he was the son of former slaves. It is no coincidence that he ended up in Philadelphia in the 1850s. Philadelphia had the largest free black population in the country with 20,000 free black residents and a population of about a quarter million. By the time we hit 1890, the population doubles to 40,000 and a total population of about 1.1 million. So you have many free blacks, and former slaves that escape and assimilate into the free black population of Philadelphia. The Quakers historically were known as abolitionists. The very first anti-slavery protest in North America was written by the Germantown Friends of Philadelphia in 1688. And Quakers remained active as a religious body up until 1776 when Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, the governing body of the Society of Friends, really as a measure of purifying their religious body from the sin of slavery, made it a cause for any Quaker to own slaves. Before that time, there were a lot of Quaker merchants who were making a lot of money on the slave trade. But after Philadelphia Yearly Meeting makes this discipline in 1776, Society of Friends washes their hands of the issue, and they no longer are involved in it. However, individual friends like John Woolman, Benjamin Lay, Lucretia Mott, continued to take that anti-slavery crusade into the larger non-Quaker society. They started the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society in 1837, a largely Quaker-founded and Quaker-operated society, and they employed William Still in um, 1847. They employed him as a mail clerk and a janitor, still very quickly proved his responsibleness and his passion for their wider causes. And they made him the secretary of a uh, committee, the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee in 1852, that was to gather intelligence on any escaping slaves coming through the city of Philadelphia. And it is here where Still begins his interviews. Of these runaway slaves. They're
0: out there scouting to see who is a strange white person in a hotel who might be coming on a slave search, right? Correct. You open the book in such a moving way. What are the chances that William still is going to be across the table from an escaped slave? Who turns out to be a long-lost relative.
1: Right. In August of 1850, a uh, free black man by the name of Peter Friedman walks into the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society offices in Philadelphia, and William Still, who is the clerk, greets him and asks him what his business is. And Peter Friedman tells him that he was separated from his mother in slavery. He heard that she came from or traveled up here to Pennsylvania, maybe New Jersey, and he wants to place notices in the African-American churches of the city to see if anybody knows of his mother, a woman by the name of Sydney. And as they continue to talk, there are many similarities in the story of this Sydney and William Still's mother, Charity Still. Well, after about 20 minutes, Still realizes that this is, in fact, one of the brothers he never met because he was left in slavery. He does take him home to New Jersey, where his mother is still alive, and they're reunited. And it is that incident in particular that committed William Still to interviewing every single one of the 995 slaves who came under his care for the purpose of reuniting families who were separated in slavery after the 13th Amendment.
0: One of the things we hear over and over as we have more and more discussions about slavery in the United States and the effects of slavery is that wrenching situation of the ripping apart of families. Mm-hmm. William Still was determined, if he could then, to keep a record so that as many people could be reunited. This turns out to be something that is of staggering historic importance, what he did.
1: Absolutely. 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 His book, simply titled The Underground Railroad, first published in 1872, becomes the most authentic source that we have on the Underground Railroad. What do I mean by authentic? By authentic, I mean not only that it is kept by an agent of the Underground Railroad who had a major responsibility, but he documented it and he interviewed every single member of essentially a fixed population. What do I mean by that? Most of the other sources that have been written about the Underground Railroad first are are written by white Quakers, and many of them are pounding their chest about how proud they are and don't give much credit to the runaways or to the free blacks who were involved. Still gives us that insight that all the blacks that ran away on the Underground Railroad had to be exceptional intellectually to evade capture. The free blacks were sacrificing their own lives because if a slave catcher cannot capture a runaway slave, they would easily kidnap a free black and take, take them and sell them into slavery. The Freedom Papers meant nothing at all. These other sources on the Underground Railroad also discuss random populations of runaways. Some from Georgia, some from Alabama, some from Florida, some from Virginia. What still gives us is a snapshot into a tri state area where they all came from, meaning Delaware, Virginia, and Maryland. That is tremendously important because it gives us a profile of the kind of slaves that ran away. And going through that, I completed, I'm not going to say I did the database myself, because a very dear friend of mine, Jim McGowan, who passed away in 2008, started the database. But he called through, he began to call through the 780 pages of William Still's book and Journal C, which contains another 149 cases of runaways that Still interviewed that never made it into the book for whatever reason. And together we put together this database of the 995 slaves, ran a multivariate analysis of 20 different variables and the findings are striking. And I I wanna share them with you because uh, this has rewritten the historiography on the Underground Railroad. The four major differences that I have found between stills runaways and all the, the historiography that existed on the Underground Railroad is that number 1 the historiography stresses that the overwhelming majority of runaways escaped overland and on foot we find in stills case that 43% escaped via watercraft whereas 42% on foot that's a that's a balance okay the remainder were horse and carriage even a railroad there were a couple that escaped in in trunks but that is a very important finding, at least between the eastern line and the western line, because you have the use of watercraft, steam shift, rafts, boats that could navigate the Chesapeake Bay or even up the coast as a means of escape. The second major finding that, that I found, which distinguishes still slaves from the historiography, is a higher incidence of female escapes. The historiography says... That before 1850, with the passage of the stricter fugitive slave law, that women hardly ever escaped. The overwhelming majority of runaways were single males between the ages of 18 and 32. And after 1850, when women became very desperate to escape, they only did so in groups. I didn't find that at all. It remains very consistent throughout the 1850s that women are escaping, sometimes alone alone sometimes in groups. The third major finding deals with the value of the runaways and the rewards. In Stills' case, the rewards for his runaways are higher than the 5% of the total value assumed for the slave, which is what the historiography says. So let me explain that. The historiography claims that the rewards for a fugitive is based upon 5% of his total value. Therefore, a slave worth $1,600 in 1860 would bring a maximum reward of just $80. Still's runaways, of the cases we know, had a reward of between $150 and $500. I should say 73% of them had a reward offered between $150 and $500. If you apply that 5% theory to those runaways, those slaves would be worth $3,000 to $10,000 each, which is extremely high, even by that standards of a time. And that just didn't exist. The fourth thing that I found that I think is very significant is the incidence of individual versus group escapes. In Stills Runaways, there are many more group escapes than uh, assumed. Again, the historiography says what remains consistent is the high incidence of single male runaways between the ages of 18 and 32. Why? Because these people did not have family ties or very little family ties in bondage. So they had the strength, the fortitude, and no ties to the plantation to escape. Well, what I found is that of the 995 runaways still assisted, 66% escaped in 173 groups of two or more members compared to 34% who traveled alone. The largest group of these runaways was 28 and consisted of four large families. Five other groups had 10 or more members. 20 additional groups consisted of six to eight runaways, and all of them contained family members. So what this tells me is that the desire to escape was the desire to keep the family unit together, not to remain in bondage to keep the family unit together. So just the opposite. Finally, and I think this is statistically significant, although many historians would argue that it is not because of the numbers I'm working with. The historiography, and this deals with the literacy of the runaways, mulatto versus black. Historiography claims that mulattoes were more prone to be literate than dark complexion blacks because they were house servants. And some were favored by the masters. Some of them were so favored that perhaps the mistress of the plantation taught them how to read. Dark complexion slaves were field hands, and they had very little opportunity to become literate. They would be the ones to run away. That's not what I found. Of the 390 runaways whose skin color is known of stills runaways, 74% can be considered black compared to 26% who were described as mulatto that's consistent with the historiography. But what's not consistent is the assumption that light-skinned slaves were more literate than dark-skinned slaves. Of the 69 cases where literacy is known, 36% of the mulattoes were literate compared to 30% of the blacks. That's not an appreciable difference. So I think in all these ways, these findings really challenge significantly the historiography on the Underground Railroad. And other scholars who work on this field in the future will have to address them
0: what happened after john brown's papers were confiscated after the failure of the raid williams still got worried that his papers would be
1: seized exactly because among john brown's findings there was a reference in a letter to william still and still felt if a us marshal came to his door and had a warrant back in those days not even a warrant And the premises was searched well if they found his records he'd incriminate a lot of people so he hid them in a crypt in Lebanon cemetery and kept his notes on scraps of paper prior to that he kept them in journals and after a slave would leave he would take them and hide them in the crypt this does cause some problems because as I said when Still finally in 1872 writes his book on the Underground Railroad, it ends up being a conglomerative pastiche of records. And there are repeat cases in there. There are some cases that aren't included that weren't in a journal C. And it was a big challenge to try to go through those 780 pages and find out who was who and what exactly, you know, they were doing. But we did that. And the appendix of the book contains every single one of those 995 slaves by name and the 20 different variables.
0: And that's your book you're talking about.
1: Right. And Jim and I did that because we wanted to continue in William Still's spirit by providing Black family members the opportunity to do their genealogy. And and the book does that.
0: It's fascinating to read about the approach to publishing Still's book and that he didn't just list the statistics, that he really wanted to craft a narrative and tell stories in addition to making sure that we got the various details.
1: And and the book is a fascinating book for the stories of, of runaway slaves. I mean, I'm sure most people are familiar with the story of Henry Box Brown, a Richmond, Virginia slave who had himself crated to freedom and mailed to William Still in Philadelphia and Still unpacked him and sent him on his way on the Underground Railroad up to Canada. Uh, People, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of Jane Johnson, who was a slave of Colonel John Wheeler, the American ambassador to Nicaragua. They're traveling through Philadelphia. Uh, Jane Johnson makes it known to the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee that she wants her freedom, and so William Still. Passmore, Williamson, and two other members of the Vigilance Committee approach Wheeler uh, on the Philadelphia wharves with Jane Johnson there, and they ask her if she wants her freedom. She says yes, and they escort her away. There is an altercation, and Wheeler sues Still and his party for assault and then files a civil suit against Passmore Williamson because he refuses to disclose Jane Johnson's whereabouts. Passmore Williamson, a Quaker lawyer, becomes a cause celebre for the underground and abolitionist movements because he is locked up in Moyamensing Prison for months. There's even a famous photograph of him taken, and you have all these famous abolitionists coming in, visiting him, and signing their name to a guest book. But the the escape that is, I think, most telling for me, because it really talks about the dangers that were not only confronted by runaways but also for abolitionists, both black and white, is the tale of Peter Still's wife and children. Peter Still, when he finally met his brother William in 1850, told William that he still had a wife, Vina, and his family in slavery in Alabama, Cotton Plantation, Alabama. And a Quaker by the name of Seth Conklin hears about this and feels led to go and rescue Vena and the children. So Conklin, Peter, and William still concoct the plan. Conklin goes disguised as a slave master, gets to the Alabama plantation, and takes Vina and the children, and they get as far as Indiana, which is quite a distance, narrowly making escapes on three occasions. But in Indiana, they are discovered and Vina and the children are returned to slavery. Conklin is beaten to death. Vina and the children are eventually freed, but Peter still has to go on a three-year abolitionist speaking circuit to raise the money to purchase their freedom. I think that's a very telling story because these white Quakers were putting their lives in danger just as the free blacks were, and just as clearly the runaways were, and and still tells those stories, and he tells them very well.
0: And the audience for his book, who were they? Who was buying these books and the subscription process?
1: Yes, as I'm sure you know, in the 19th century, you had to issue subscriptions and people had to buy the book before it came out through subscription. And the first printing in 1872, Porter and Coates, who were a modern white Philadelphia publisher because they had magnetic flatbed presses and can turn out pages ad nauseum, they purchased the copyright and had glass plates so they could put illustrations in the book, but they demanded subscriptions. The first run was 10,000 and it sold out within three years. People who were purchasing this were clearly people who were abolitionists, people who were also pro-slavery because they wanted to try to find out in the aftermath who these people were, just out of curiosity, perhaps. There was a wide audience. What William still needed to do, however, by 1872 is basically to reclaim his reputation because... In the 1860s, after the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment, William Still became a pioneer civil rights activist who based his arguments on moral suasion, not direct confrontation. At the same time, there was a younger group of civil rights pioneers led by Octavius Caddo and included Isaiah Wears, Jacob C. White, Fanny Coppin, These young people believed in direct confrontation, and they used that in order to get the streetcars in Philadelphia integrated, a cause that still had been working for since 1859, but Cato's group took all four years to get it accomplished because of direct confrontation, and also to get the black vote back, and in the young generation's case, to vote a Republican ticket basically as gratitude for all everything that radical Republicans did in the previous period. Well, Still was opposed to that because Still, like Frederick Douglass said, we should not become pawns of the Republican Party. We should vote our conscience, and we should listen carefully to all the candidates, regardless if they're independent, Democrat, or Republican. Well, all this blows up in October of 1871, in the first mayoral election in Philadelphia where blacks are allowed to vote. Octavius Caddo, who is trying to rally the Republican vote from free blacks, is murdered. He's murdered by a white anarchist, but a lot of the black residents blame Still for this, for not defending Caddo and the young group of reformers. So Still's reputation took a hit, a bad hit. So one of the reasons to write his own book was not just to reunite families that were separated in slavery, but was also to show that a black man could write a very good history and disprove the myth of black intellectual inferiority, and was also to improve his reputation, which had taken a hit in, in the 1870s and the 1860s.
0: Was there any sense that he was resented for being a successful business person? He worked with coal. Right. In
1: 1861, when pretty much the Underground Railroad was done and the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society couldn't afford really to pay him much anymore, still went out on his own. Took a lot of courage because he had $300 to his name. Yes, he had about $2,000 worth of real estate, but he parlayed his $300 into a coal and iron business and with the help of the new technology of the time period became very prosperous. However, because he was in this conflict with the young generation of civil rights activists, many younger blacks boycotted his businesses. And then they accused him of pandering to whites because only wealthy white people were purchasing his coal and his iron. So again, the, the writing of his own book was yet another way to try to say, hey, I was an abolitionist. I did everything I could for the freedom of our people. And although I might not have believed in direct confrontation, I kept these issues of the integration of streetcars and the black vote, I kept them in play for a decade before Cato and his other reformers came around. And I, I think I think still deserves credit for that. I, I wish that he did not demand deference from that younger group, but he did. Make no mistake, still considered himself an elite, and he was taught himself how to read and write, wrote his own book, and you know had his own lucrative business. So he was in that small percentage in Philadelphia, and he died a very very wealthy man, perhaps the wealthiest black man in Philadelphia. It was worth. 750, between 750000 and a million dollars at his death in 1902.
0: What about other prominent names of the time? Now, Harriet Tubman, and we associate her with the Underground Railroad, and you tell us he wasn't so impressed with her.
1: He wasn't, and I think this is part of William Still's idiosyncratic personality. Still worked assiduously at improving his reputation, He did not want to be looked at as an uneducated black person. William Still worked to be accepted by the white mainstream, and particularly the Quakers, who were very influential in Philadelphia. And it is pretty clear that William Still, who really doesn't mention Harriet Tubman any more than he has to in his book, did not respect Harriet Tubman because she represented really a uh, more crude type of personality. The interesting individual is Thomas Garrett, who loved Harriet Tubman and was a dear friend of William Still, and Thomas Garrett, being a Quaker and believing in the mystical communication of people, very quickly realized Harriet Tubman's clairvoyance and Harriet Tubman realized his emphasis on the mystical element. so it would not be unusual for Harriet Tubman to show up in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, Thomas Garrett's house and say, friend Thomas Garrett, the Lord told me you got shoes and a hundred dollars for me and my cause. And Garrett would turn the money over in the shoes.
0: (laughs) Also, there was some animosity or some strain in the relationship with Frederick Douglass.
1: There was, although if you read Douglass and you follow Still's actions, they agreed more than they disagreed. I think the animosity or the tension between those two men came basically out of the American anti slavery movement. The Pennsylvania Anti Slavery Society was a spin off group from William Lloyd Garrison's American Anti Slavery Society, which was founded in Philadelphia in 1833. By 1837, the American Anti Slavery Society, which had welcomed blacks into membership, welcomed women. It was the most liberal anti-slavery society out there. Did not want to get involved in the political process, however. But by 1837, when the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society was founded, William Lloyd Garrison told Frederick Douglass that his input is welcome, but they're not going to have free blacks deciding the policies of the American Anti-Slavery Society. And that's when Frederick Douglass quit. And, And, you know, here's William Still, who does ingratiate himself within the white abolitionist movement. And there's no real documentary evidence that he tried to bring Frederick Douglass back in. I think he did. I mean, there's some circumstantial evidence that leads me to believe that. But I think that was a breaking point between the two of them.
0: And one other name, W.E.B. Du Bois and Philadelphia.
1: Right. W. E. Du Bois, University of Pennsylvania, hired him to provide the statistical evidence to prove what they believed. And what they believed is that the black people of Philadelphia were the reasons for the crime and the venality that was happening in the city. (laughs) And he made a study, the Seventh Ward, where most of the blacks were. It was a very poor section of the city. And he kind of found that it was the effects of slavery and the treatment of whites towards blacks that caused the crime and the venality in Philadelphia. W.E. Du Bois was at odds with Booker T. Washington for his approach to civil rights. Booker T. Washington was more like William Still. We're going to let the courts and Congress handle the civil rights issue. We are going to try to prove ourselves to the white mainstream in our work, and in our humanitarianism, and in our contributions to society. W.E. Du Bois, on the other hand, was more in line with Octavius Cato, who demanded equal rights and used direct confrontation. That dialectic is a dialectic that we can see throughout African-American history. And it started with Cato and Still. It continued in the Niagara movement between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, and we, we saw it in the 1960s between Malcolm X and uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I dare say we're starting to see it again with blacks who—I know we see it in historical circles—with black historians who see no problem with whites like me working on black history and and join in our efforts and a growing group of younger people who believe that white historians like me have no business writing black history. That disappoints me and concerns me. I was really happy with this. I think Jim McGowan, who was black, would be very happy with this book. And I think we did something that honors William Still.
0: Before we even open your book, we see this handsome portrait of William Still.
1: It is a colorized image of William Still in, in the 1870s, and he appears as a very dignified man, which he was, very determined man, and if you understand the history of photography, when a photographer does a portrait, he or she will suggest to the subject that there are a variety of poses that deliver a certain message. In this portrait, William Still is staring directly into the camera lens. Full face, not three-quarter, full face. And what this tells us is that William Still is a man of integrity. He has nothing to hide. And and I think it's very accurate, a very accurate portrayal of him.
0: Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we're free at last. Dr. William Kishadis speaking about his study titled William Still, the Underground Railroad and the Angel at Philadelphia, recently issued by the University of Notre Dame Press. William Still, the free black abolitionist who coordinated the east line of the Underground Railroad based he was in Philadelphia. Dr. Kishadis holds a doctorate in history education from the University of Pennsylvania, He curated, just over the line, Chester County and the Underground Railroad, which won the American Association of Historical Society and Museums Award of Merit. He is author or co-author of 30 books, including Harriet Tubman, A Biography, and In Pursuit of Freedom, Teaching the Underground Railroad. Dr. Cushedis has taught at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education and in the history departments of Westchester University and Luzerne County Community College in Anticoke. His family has roots here in northeastern Pennsylvania. For more information on the web, undpress.nd.edu. And those UND letters are for the University of Notre Dame. So, undpress.nd.edu. The book is titled William Still, The Underground Railroad and the Angel at Philadelphia by William C. Kachetis, and Kachetis is spelled K-A-S-H-A-T-U-S.